You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening. And welcome to the Pratt Library's Writers Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and I bring you greetings from the Pratt Library staff. This evening, we are pleased to have as our guest author for our Writers Live series, Leonard Pitts, Jr., commentator, journalist, and novelist. He is a nationally syndicated columnist and winner of the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary. Originally, he was hired by the Miami Herald to critique music, but quickly received his own column in which he has written extensively about race, politics, and culture from a progressive perspective. He has won numerous awards for his writing from the Society of Professional Journalists, the American Society of Newspaper Editors, and the National Association of Black Journalists. And he was first nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in 1993. He is a best-selling author for his fiction and nonfiction works, and he gained national recognition for his widely circulated column of September 12, 2001. We'll go forward from this moment, in which he described the toughness of the American spirit in the face of September 11th attacks. This evening, Leonard Pitts Jr. will discuss his latest work, The Last Thing You Surrender, Please join me in welcoming Leonard Pitts, Jr. to the Pratt Library. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. There you go. I just want to make sure I'm not here by myself. Thank you all so much for coming out. Thank you for that, uh, for that very generous uh, uh, introduction. Uh, I want to spend a few minutes talking about my new novel, The Last Thing You Surrender, talking a little bit about the themes and, and, and what it's about and, and why I wrote it, and uh, then uh, read a little bit from it uh, for you. And then I hope uh, at the end of that, something that I have said will raise some questions and somebody we can have a dialogue, uh, a Q&A. If you prefer, I can ask the, the Qs, and you guys can provide the As, but... I think it'll probably work better if we <laughs> do it the traditional way and, and, and you guys have some questions for me. The last thing you surrender, I tend not to write books that are, that are high concept. I think my novel Freeman was pretty high concept, but other than that, I tend to write books trying to scratch an itch, trying to get at a, trying to get at a feeling. And with this particular novel, what I wanted to deal with was a couple of things. I wanted to deal with this sense that I have that um, the Second World War, which is when this book takes place, is sort of the pivot point of, of, of our history, of, war, of uh, American history and of, and of uh, international history, sort of the, 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 the line between, the, 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 mod, between the, the old world and the new world order, the, wor- the world that we're in. And I also want to deal with you know, broadly speaking, what it means to be a human being, a truly human being. What, what are the choices that, that one must make? What are the things that one must do in order to, to, to be simply a good person, particularly in a time when, when the world is burning down around you, when the world is going to hell? So that was essentially the genesis of The Last Thing You Surrender. It's about, you know, for want of a better term, trying to, what it takes to be a moral hero. And I should point out at this, at this moment that uh, everything I know about being a hero, or most everything I know about being a hero, I, I first learned from the late, great Stan Lee. 
Um, and Stan taught me a couple of things. Stan taught me that a hero could be black or white or green or orange or pretty much any other color of the rainbow. And the other thing that he taught me, which um, has stuck with me uh, for the, all the years since, was that being a hero is not about doing the right thing without any vulnerabilities or doubts or difficulties. It is about doing the right thing despite all the difficulties, the vulnerabilities, and the doubts. So that's essentially what these three characters that I'm going to talk to you about, that's essentially what they end up trying to find themselves doing. Uh, briefly to sketch them out, the first character that you meet, you meet is uh, George uh, Simon, and you meet him on Pearl Harbor, literally. The book, the book literally begins with a bang because it begins with an explosion of, uh, of uh, Japanese uh, shells against the uh, ship where he's uh, sleeping in the Marine berth. He's a uh, 19-year-old Marine uh, from an affluent family, a white kid from Mobile, Alabama. And he thinks of himself as a good kid. He thinks of himself as a good Christian kid. But he's this guy who, although he doesn't know it yet, uh, who has had a, a faith, not only in, in, in the divine, but a faith in himself that is easy because it's never really been tested. Again, he's a white kid from the Jim Crow South with, with, a, lot, with, a, with a rich dad. So it's not as if he's really endured or gone through anything. And that all changes for him beginning on the morning of, of December 7th. George is instantly injured uh, in the Pearl Harbor attack and would have died on the ship, the USS Oklahoma, uh, except that his life is saved by this black Navy messman named Eric. Eric saves George's life and loses his own in the process. And for George, this moral man, this Christian man, that's a moment of, of, of questioning himself, because you've got this guy, this black guy, that I never actually saw. He, 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 I knew his name, barely. Uh, he, 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 you know, scoops, he refilled my coffee and he, and he, and he scooped up eggs for me. You know, uh, but I never actually saw him until this moment when, when he died. And this creates sort of a crisis of confidence for George because he comes to realize all the ways in which, um, you know, he is a privileged, white privileged man from the Jim Crow South has not seen what's right in front of him in terms of, in terms of uh, African-Americans and African-American life. Uh, the military, uh, seizing on a uh, uh, promotional opportunity, decides to send George to the widow of the man who saved his life. Turns out they both live in the same hometown, Mobile, Alabama. George lives out on the west side near the country club. Uh, Thelma, who is the widow, lives down in the south uh, where the streets are, are not paved. And uh, George, you know, this injured uh, Marine, goes down to her house uh, to participate or to induce her to participate in this promotional gimmick that the Marines, that the, uh, the U.S. Uh, War Department has dreamed up. Uh, we want you to, we want to get a picture of you and shaking the hand of this white Marine, uh, thanking him for, you know, or, or, or accepting his condolences for the death of your husband. And maybe if this really works out, the two of you can take it on the road. You can go to African-American communities all over the country and, and talk to, 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 to people about how excited you are, uh, you know, uh, how glad you are that, that your husband saved this man's life and, and inducing other African-American people to participate in the war. The thing you have to remember and the thing we sometimes forget is that African-Americans, you know, in this war, as in pretty much every war in American history, looked at it and said, okay, why should we fight? We're fighting for freedom, and freedom is not something that we enjoy. 
in the First World War, there was, a, there was, a, there was this huge movement of African Americans uh, opting out of the war. So the, the U.S. military says in, in this novel and in actual fact, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're going to try to head this off. We're going to try to in, uh, gin up some enthusiasm amongst the quote-unquote the Negroes. Uh, so they send George to this woman's door, and she rightly smells a rat, you know. What are you? What are you? What, what's, what's going on here? What are you doing to, to, to shake my hand? And why are these photographers and all the, all the rest of the stuff here? Uh, Thelma Gordy is a, is a is a very smart, uh, compassionate um, African American woman who, because it's 1941 and she's an African American woman, is constrained by all those things that constrained women and people of color in those times. She's she's scary smart, but she ends up uh, as a, a domestic for a white lady. Uh, and for her, the war will be a point of, uh, will be a time of great change, as it was for a lot of women, a lot of African Americans. Uh, while other people are going off to fight, she will end up on the, uh, uh, at, at the shipyard, the, uh, on Pinto Island, which is in Mobile Bay, uh, building ships for the military. And it'll be the first time for her as a woman and as an African American that she feels like she has reached beyond the constraints of what was preordained for her. She is, she's, she's building shifts for the war, you know, hallelujah. And, she, and she's, she's proud of herself, and she's discovered a new, new abilities and, and new sense of herself that was never there before. But it's kind of too good to, add, to, to last. Uh, Thelma uh, falls in and becomes a friend to this uh, white woman, a uh, poor white woman from the hills of Alabama, from the mining company, country, rather, excuse me, named Flora Lee. And Flora Lee's a nice lady, but Flora Lee's got a husband who's psychotic. Uh, Flora Lee's husband beats her, and Flora Lee's husband is, is just, his racism is off the charts. His hatred for, for, for people of color is off the charts. So in order for Thelma to be friends with this woman and to give this woman the help she needs, she's going to have to put herself in some, and her, and her friends and her family, in some great danger. Uh, and the question becomes, okay, do you, do you do this? What's the moral thing for you to do to, say, to help this woman save herself and at, and at what cost? I won't tell you too much about what happens to Thelma. I will just say that she pays, uh, she, she makes a decision and she pays a cost for it. The final character that I want to talk to you about and the one that I'll read to you about uh, from is Luther. Luther is Thelma's brother. And if Thelma is a little bit skeptical when this white guy shows up at her door, Luther is skeptical times five. Because the thing about Luther is Luther don't like white people. Luther does not like white people, and Luther does not like America. Luther hates America. And uh, Luther has very good reason for that. When Luther was nine years old, uh, he saw both their parents lynched and burned alive at the front door by a white man, a county commissioner, who was angry with them, uh, with, uh, with Luther's father, because Luther's, Luther's father refused to sell him a hog. Uh, so he comes to the front door, and he kills these two people. Now, Thelma's only three at the time, so she can't, she can't remember this. But Luther cannot forget it. And as a result, when we meet Luther, he's a man of 27 years old. He's a drunk. Uh, he's, a, he's a working drunk. He's, in other words, he's not a guy who lay around drinking all day. He'll, he'll do what he's got to do. He'll go to work. And then the rest of the day, don't talk to him because Luther's got his drink on somewhere. Uh, but he's, 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 a, he's this bitter drunk uh, whose, whose life has never really gone anywhere and who is, sort of exists in this state of, of, of constant fury. And then here comes this, this earnest white Marine uh, looking kind of like, in my, in my mind's eye at least, uh, Richie Cunningham from Happy Days. You, you got the picture? <laughs> okay. So, so Richie Cunningham comes to, comes to Luther's door 
with this, with this PR stunt, and it's not pretty. And it's not pretty, and Luther sends him away. Luther uh, eventually gets his draft notice, and Luther says that he's not going to fight for this, for this racist country or this white man's country. Uh, Luther is eventually, and I won't give you the, the details of it, but Luther is eventually blackmailed into, uh, into or forced into fighting for the country. And uh, he ends up uh, with the 761st Battalion, which was the Black Panthers. The, it was an all-black tank battalion. Not very well known. A lot of people know the... Um, the uh, the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, but a lot of people don't know the Black Panthers. Luther ends up as a black as a Black Panther, fighting uh, uh, his way across across Europe. And in that moment, in that experience, I should say, he makes the same discovery that all of my characters, I think, I hope, eventually make, which is that we tend to think of we tend to be very provincial about what we endure in this country, whether as African-Americans or, or, or women or whatever, we tend to think only in terms of our struggle here and the, the hatred that we have to overcome here and the violence that we endure here. And what Luther comes to discover, what George comes to discover, uh, what Thelma even comes to discover is that this is part of something global. In other words, it's not just an American sickness, it's a human sickness. And I want to read you a scene from uh, from Luther's discovery of this. There's, there's, for Luther, there's a there's a very big moment when he when he discovers himself and what he has gone through to be part of something of something much larger. Uh, this is a scene that takes place as the 761st Tank Battalion is uh, encountering a strange camp uh, somewhere in Germany. Luther stood on top of the tank. He felt his mouth fall open. He felt his mind fumble for language but there were no words. It was a camp of some sort, barracks arranged in neat rows, and hobbling, shuffling, tottering toward them from every direction came an assemblage of stick men in filthy black and white striped prison suits. Maybe some of them were women too. It was hard to tell. The creatures seemed sexless. Dazed, Luther dismounted the tank. His mouth was still open. The creatures swarmed the colored tankers. It was difficult to believe they were even human. Their eyes were like small, frightened animals, peering out from the caverns their eye sockets had become. Their mouths were drawn tight against their bony jaws. You could look at them and see where tibia met patella, count their ribs by sight. They were little more than skeletons, wearing rags of flesh. And their eyes gleamed with a madness of joy, an insanity of deliverance at the sight of the colored tankers. They shook clasped hands toward heaven. They smiled terrible, toothless smiles. They looked up at the Negro soldiers like penitents upon the very throne of God. A woman, at least he thought it was a woman, took Luther's hand and lifted it to her cheek. Her grip was like air. She held his skin to hers, which was papery and thin almost translucent. Her face contorted into an expression of raw, utter sorrow, and she made groaning sounds that did not seem quite human. It took Luther a moment to realize that she was crying because her eyes remained dry. No water glistened on her cheeks. She had no tears left in her. And Luther, who had never touched a white woman before, who had never so much as brushed against one in a crowd, 
who had avoided even that incidental contact with a kind of bone-deep terror, accessible only to a Negro man in the Deep South who grew up knowing all too well what messing with a white woman could get you, could only stand there, stricken and dumbfounded, as this woman pressed his hand to her cheek. He was a man who had seen his parents tortured and burned to death before his very eyes at his own front door by white people. It had never occurred to him that their capacity for bestial cruelty was not limited to the woes they inflicted upon Negroes. But here was the proof. This poor thing whose gender he had to guess, this creature whose age might have been 16, might have been 60, holding his hand in her airy grip, crying without tears. Luther looked around. The place reeked of death and shit, a stink of putrefaction that surely profaned the very nostrils of God. Naked and emaciated bodies lay stacked in piles exactly like cordwood, only their gaping eyes and sightless sightless eyes attesting to the fact that once they had been human and alive. Flies droned above it all in great black clouds, a few of them occasionally descending to walk in the mouths and eyes of the dead. At length the crying woman got hold of herself. Luther gently took back his hand. She gave him a shy, weak smile, touched her feathery hand to his shoulder, some sort of thank you, he supposed, and wandered slowly away. Luther watched her go, still dazed, still failed by language, and he still struggled to understand. It had never occurred to him, not even in his angriest, most bitter imaginings, that something like this was possible. How could white people do this to white people? How could anybody do this to anybody? Uh, So that's a little bit of Luther's discovery, I guess you could call it. And I know that always brings the room down, that reading. Yeah, nobody, nobody smiles after that reading. But I think it's important for you to kind of understand what kind of book this is. Uh, uh, the reviews that I've seen, and I'm, I'm so touched by them and flattered by them, but all the review, most of the reviews say, this was a hard book to read. Oh, yeah, I got some, I got some amens over here. <laughs> this was a hard book to read, but I'm glad I read it. Uh, and I, I wrote it anticipating and hoping for and expecting just that reaction. It's a hard book to read. It's a hard book to, when, you, when you read Thelma's ordeal, when you read what happens to Luther's parents, when you read scenes like this in the, in the death camp. But I think that we need a reminder of the capacity that we as human beings have for cruelty. And it's not just black to white. It's, it's just so many different lines of demarcation that we as human beings draw across our own, our common humanity. Uh, and that we choose, okay, those people who are on the other side of the line because they're black, because they're Jewish, because they're Muslim, because they are old, because they're whatever, those people are less than human. And I think that that's a very important thing to remember and to discuss, especially now, because we're seeing it come back. We're seeing it come back, roaring back with a vengeance and with a pride. It's fascinating to me. I think the mistake that people of goodwill made uh, you know, o- over the years since the civil rights movement is to say, okay, well, done. You know, we have overcome. Everything, everything's cool. And, 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 and sort of took our eyes off the prize. And the thing that we failed to understand is that while we were resting on our laurels, the people who did not believe in those things that we had fought for were planning and scheming and, 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 and doing everything that they could to undermine the gains that were made. And now we look up and we have just amazingly um, things, that you would, things that if you had told me when I was 25 years old that I would see at all, at, 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 in my early 60s, I would not have believed. 
just in Pennsylvania, just I think it was a day or so ago, uh, a Muslim, uh, just before a Muslim lawmaker, state lawmaker was sworn in, uh, some lady prayed a prayer to, to, to Jesus, you know, essentially against this woman because she's a Muslim and, she, and, and because she's a third. That's not what America's supposed to be. You know, that's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be better than that. But we, as, re- as, 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 as along with the rest of the world, are backsliding. Um, you know, we talk sometimes, people talk sometimes, talk very often and airily about the possibility of a great race war. We're going to have the, where there's going to be a great race war. My contention and one of the other reasons I wrote this book is that we already had the race war. It was called World War II. And I know that it's not usually framed in that way, but if you look at that war very carefully, it's difficult to see how it can be framed in any other way. Adolf Hitler went to war because he, in large part because he wanted to exterminate the Jews. Jews are not a race, but he had racialized them. So we want to exterminate the Jews. And also, by the way, he hates the Bolsheviks, i.e. the Russians. So these are two, quote-unquote, races that he seeks to exterminate. The Japanese are rampaging in, uh, in, in the Pacific because they are under the delusion that they are the master race of Asia. And all other Asian peoples in, 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 in the Pacific must bow to them. The United States jumps into this war to fight for freedom and democracy and equality with a Jim Crow military. <laughs> With, with a separate but equal military, uh, a military that is so separate but equal that, a, that a, uh, a U.S. Army private, a black U.S. Army private, Rupert Trimmingham, wrote a letter in 1944 to Yank magazine complaining that he and his fellow black soldiers were required at a train stop in Louisiana to go around to the kitchen, to a window in the kitchen, to get their meals from this restaurant while Amer- white American soldiers and the Nazi prisoners they were guarding <laughs> ate in the dining room. Okay, that, that, that's how, you know, that's how, that's how, how, how we were. But we, we, we rushed into this war anyway to, to stop this. Uh, we, the, one of the first things we did after rushing into this war for freedom and liberation was to incarcerate, I think it was 120,000 of our own citizens, you know, because they were Japanese Americans. And two years after the great... Um, you know, the, 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 the attack at Pearl Harbor in which we say we've all come together, we're all one people now. You have race riots across the country. You have race riot in Los Angeles uh, where servicemen, I think that was in 44, you have a race riot in Los Angeles where servicemen spent a week beating up on Mexican-American uh, kids. You have race riot in Detroit because a black doctor wants to move into a white neighborhood. You have race riot in Harlem, and you have a race riot in Mobile, which figures uh, prominently in this book. So, you know, this, the, we, we've had the race war. We have absolutely had our race war, and we have absolutely seen where it comes out. So there's a need for this book, for me, in my, in my thinking, there's a need for this to be harsh. There's a need not to coddle us through re- a reminder of, 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 of where we've been and what we've done, if only so that we can say we can do better. And that's what the book is about. That's what those three characters are, are about, the, 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 the struggle to become better. You see sort of Luther's turning point in the, in the, in the excerpt that I read for you. Uh, in Thelma, it is – I can't tell you a whole lot about Thelma's story. In Thelma, it is, it is what happens to her and what comes out of that. Uh, for George, it is a harrowing experience in a Japanese, Ameri- in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp where he discovers what it's like to be treated as less than human. The Japanese, under the influence of what they called the Bushido Code, uh, regarded surrender as 
made you less than, you know, less than, than, than a person, less than a human being, and they treated their prisoners in that way. So there's a scene in which George realizes all the markers of his identity, all the things in which he has been able to take some kind of pride or, or, or achieve some kind of station are gone. The fact that he's American doesn't matter. The fact that he's white doesn't matter. The fact that he's a Christian doesn't matter. The fact that he's got money doesn't matter. He is still uh, uh, finds himself standing in a pit beneath a Japanese uh, outhouse. Uh, yeah, I told you it was a harsh book. She frowned on me. He still finds himself Jap- standing in a pit beneath a Japanese outhouse as punishment for, for angering the Japanese. So, you know, so for him, you know, it's, it's, it's the same, I guess, as for all, all the other characters. It's this thing of finding out, okay, what do I believe? What does it take to be a human being? And, 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 and what's going to bring me out of this as a better person than, than, than I went into it? Um, and that, is that's the essential uh, uh, arc of the whole book? Because I told you, I seldom write books that uh, that you can explain in 25 words or less. My elevator pitch sucks, just for those, <laughs> just for just for anybody who wonders. But uh, this is a this is a very heartfelt book for me. This is a book that that I felt needed to be written. I did not anticipate our current political situation as I was writing it. I started before that before that happened. But it feels very timely to this situation. I've heard a lot of reviewers say that as well, that even though the book wasn't written for these times or, or even about these times, it nevertheless speaks to these times. And I hope that if, uh, if, uh, if you pick it up, you'll feel the same way. So I think I've talked myself out. If anybody has any questions, or I can ask you questions, it, it doesn't matter to me. I'm getting the Q&A mic. Oh, we got a Q&A mic. You don't even have to yell across the room. We got a question right here, I think. Are you just, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm curious if any of your characters perceived uh, that they were equal opportunity haters or did they approach uh, their hatred by saying, somebody has to be lower than me for me to feel okay about myself Well, um, or fl- as a group? Flora Lee's husband never articulates that, but I, as the narrator, try, defi- try very definitely to give you that sense that part of the reason that he's so psychotic in his hatred of African-American people is because he's got nothing other than that. You know, he's, he's, he's a guy with a, he's a, he's a poor guy, uneducated with a birth defect okay and i won't talk too much about the birth defect but it, it you know it kind of just challenged him throughout his life so his his feeling even though he never articulated is that i've got nothing but at least i've got black people to look down on which frankly is is the source of a lot of is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, racism i i've always felt and I, I don't know if anybody's done the the research to quantify this but i'd be willing to wager a good amount that the most violent Lynching the, the, the lynchings and the most terrible racial violence that we that we've uh, endured over 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 the century over the decades that most of it came from from white people on the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, category. That doesn't mean that the ones above them were any less, but they had they had the means to to inflict racism by other means. You know what I'm saying? They weren't as, they weren't they they weren't as close to. But uh, I, I think that there's definitely a correlation between that sense of of being poor and desperate and needing somebody to look down upon, definitely. Who's next? Y'all going to leave me hanging because I will start asking you questions. Um, What is the last thing you surrender? (laughs) 
Is it, is it humanity dignity? See, you like have that? to buy the book. Uh, you're not going to tell me. That's, you have to buy the book and you have to read. I get asked that question at every signing, and yeah, I've never uh, told anybody yet. I will say, though, that it, it, you, you do have the general sense of the title. It's about after you've lost everything. You know, after after you've been 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 beaten down to nothing, what's the last thing that you give up? Right. Now, as to what that last thing is, it's in the book. Yeah, you'll <laughs> find out. Yeah, you'll have to find out. Yeah. That's like asking me. That's like asking a mystery writer who did it. You know, I ain't gonna tell you that. Right, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I, I did have another another question. Sure. I, I wondered, if, did you ever read Sophie's Choice? Uh, uh no, Styron? I saw the movie years ago and, so, and remember very little well, the about thing it. In that, in that book, this, this young Styron character mm. who's in Brooklyn, and he's a Southerner who is struggling with the recently gained knowledge that his family was slaveholders. Uh-huh. Right? And then he gets, he lives in this house with uh, Jews who have escaped uh, from, uh, from Hitler mm. now. And what he, what one of the things he learned from them is that Auschwitz was really a slave camp. It was slave labor, and they were using these people. They would just use them as slaves until they wore them out, and then they'd kill them. Yeah, there were well, there were a couple. Auschwitz, uh, Auschwitz. Um, there was one Auschwitz Birkenau, I think, was for ex- extermination, and then Auschwitz. I want to say Madonna, but that's probably wrong. But there was a main. The main camp was more for slave labor. Dachau might have been. So there were um, yeah. the. What Styron was playing with, I guess, was that there is a connection between our own history and German history. But the, you know. there, there's a bigger connection than that. Yeah. The, it's, it's little known, but the, the Nazis based the Nuremberg Laws on Jim Crow. The Nazis. You, you did, did you not know that? that? There was this article yeah. in the Atlantic uh, just recently. About there was an ar- I learned that from an article. The, the yeah. magazine's not published anymore, American Heritage. Uh-huh. And I read an article on that uh, 15, 20 years ago, it really blew my mind. But the Nazis based a lot of what they did on us and were, frankly, a little upset and appalled that we didn't approve, you know, of what they were doing, you know. And I've always said the thing about the Nazis that no one really wants to, to, to contend with, because I think it reflects on all of us as human beings, is they there was nothing. There's only one thing unique about the Holocaust. We look at the Holocaust; it's this huge, monstrous crime. But ultimately, there's only one thing unique about it, and that's the fact that the Nazis industrialized murder. Okay, they industrialized. They, they enabled themselves to do it on a mass scale. Right. You know, they they built factories for it, and they and they turned they t- they turned the nation's um, uh, transportation grid toward it. But ultimately. What the Nazis did is no different than what that guy did at the synagogue in, uh, in Pittsburgh a month or two ago, what, the, what, what happened in New Zealand, uh, uh, what, a week ago. It's all the same thing. That's the point that I keep trying to make to folks. So, we, you know, it's easy to look at the Nazis because they're way over there and they're, they're 70 years back in history and say, those terrible people. What, what, was, what was wrong with them? But the question we need to be asking is, what's wrong with us? Because the only thing that they did that we haven't yet, thank God, is industrialize their hatred. And we actually did, indu- well, we actually did industrialize our hatred, if you want to look at Jim Crow and, and at, um, and at uh, slavery. But they industrialized their hatred to the point of murder. Right. And that, that's the only thing that they did that we have not done. But other than that, nobody, not us, not anybody that I know of, has any right to be looking at the Nazis going, oh, those terrible people, what did they do? No, what do, what's wrong, not what's wrong with them, what's wrong with... Us. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian minister. I have mm. a hard time understanding why, why so many Christians 
today would support Trump, right? Evangelicals. <laughs> oh, oh you, you, but, you, you, want me to, you want me to preach a sermon, but Pastor? When, don't you? Yeah, but when, but, but, I, but when I look at Germany, you know, uh-huh. the vast majority of the Christian churches there supported, yeah, totally supported Hitler. They brought the swastikas into church. You know, God and country were just. Okay. And, and yeah. so, well, I'll go on with this since nobody's raising their hand saying they want to, they want to talk. Here's my issue with, with, with our, our church, because I'm a Christian as well, although not a pastor. Here's my issue with our church here in America is that on every freedom movement that I'm aware of, we've always been late. And if we are what we say we are and know what we say we know and believe what we say we believe, we're supposed to be first. We were, you know, I, I remember getting that when the uh, Southern Baptists apologized in the 90s. Yeah, for their part in, in Jim Crow and in Slate. Well, that's nice. I appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate the apology. But where were you in 1955? <laughs> you know, when it might have changed something. Yeah, then they apologized for, and have actually become pretty big uh, advocates for AIDS research. I'm glad. That's great. Where were you in 1981 when, 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 when things were, bust? you know, it's like we always surrender to fear first before coming around and doing the thing that we should do. So I've, I've always been, I've, I've been very critical of the church for that. Did you have somebody over there that wanted to? Because I'll, I'll go on talking theology and hatred for a, <laughs> for a minute. You are on a, on a slightly different um, bend, a um, syndicated columnist. Yes. And I particularly enjoyed the writing that you contributed to the Baltimore Sun. Thank you. And that is no longer available to us on a regular basis really? in the sun. And I was wondering, especially now, when in these very uh, interesting times, <laughs> that a voice like yours mm-hmm. is so important, where your column is syndicated and why you are no longer featured regularly in the in the, our local Baltimore Sun. As far as I knew, I was, and I'll have to check my list and see if the Baltimore Sun is on it. But if ever you want to see any of my writing, uh, you can. there's a number of options. You can go to MiamiHerald.com. Miami Herald is my home paper. You can find it there. You can follow me on Twitter because I tweet out every, a link to every column. Of course, you'll have to put up with me having engagements like this one as, as well, but I do tweet out every column. And also uh, my Facebook, um, uh, I, 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 I tweet links to every column. On Twitter, I'm Leonard Pitts Jr. 1, I think it is. On Facebook, I think I'm just Leonard Pitts Jr., but I'm not really sure. So, uh, At BaltimoreSun.com? Okay. Used to be on Sundays. They don't run it on Sundays anymore? News, well, newspaper businesses, as you know, having in interesting times, as you put it. Was there a question back here? Yeah. Hey. Uh, welcome back. Thank you. Um, what's the difference uh, professionally and personally being a writer, a columnist in the Deep South as opposed to being a columnist um, here in Baltimore? Are there any distinguishing factors? Not that I know of. It took me a moment when you said the Deep South, and I realized you're probably talking about Miami. Yeah. And, the th- and the thing about Miami, in Miami, we always say that Miami is the only place in the continental United States where you have to go north to get to the south. Miami is, Miami is not the south. In, I mean, geographically, yes, but culturally, no. Uh, the, you know, it, culturly, this, you know, this is the closest I've ever, I've ever been to living in the south. 
So I really don't, I really don't have, you know, any firsthand knowledge to, to, to make that comparison. Uh, I will say that the columnists that, um, that I know or that, or, or that I've read, black columnists in the South, uh, they seem more constrained and they seem to be fighting more in-your-face stuff. Uh, I think than, than than some of us who are in the north. Now, with me, it's a little difficult, a little different because my response comes from all over the country because I'm because I'm uh, uh, syndicated. But I've got a friend who was a columnist in Memphis, and she that, she used to catch hell just on a, on a, on, a, on a regular basis. And friends who who are columnists in uh, in Charlotte, I used to catch hell on a, on a, on a, on a regular basis, specifically for being black, and it didn't help that they were women, and then expressing some of these uh, some of these opinions. Uh, it's it's being a columnist in general is not for the faint-hearted. If, if your feelings are going to get hurt because somebody doesn't like you or because you express an opinion that, that, that they would rather not hear, then this is the wrong job, job for you. And then you layer onto that black, and then you layer onto that, in some cases, uh, woman. And it's, it's something that you, you, know, you could hardly imagine just in terms of the vitriol that comes. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff, too, don't get me wrong. But there's a level of vitriol. And the, the interesting thing about the vitriol for me is that it has grown more brazen, um, not just with the rise of social media, excuse me, and with the rise of that individual uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, it has grown, it has grown uh, incredibly brazen. It's like, it's, it's like party time, you know, in, in the Klan claverance right now. Uh, and, 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 and I'm serious. They're, they're playing Celebration by, well, they probably wouldn't want Cool in the Gang. Maybe there's a version by somebody else. But they're playing Celebration and, you know, and, and having a good time in the Klan claverance right now uh, and, and, and feeling just very much empowered and uh, and uh, validated. And, and I'm, I'm seeing the results of that in my, in my email responses. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Thank you. You're welcome. Used to be people wouldn't sign hate mail. You know, they'd, they'd be anonymous or whatever. And I knew something was different when, when people started signing it and putting their address and their, and their phone number. <laughs> when somebody calls you an N-word or, or calls you a monkey or something like that and then says, here's, here's who I am, here's where I'm from, that, that, that's a different, you know, when I first started this, they didn't do that. When I first started this, it would be anonymous. And it's not anonymous anymore. People are proud to sign that stuff. And that told me, that told, and that started happening some years ago. And that told me, okay, we're, this is a different time. This is a different thing. Who else? I have a question. Shoot. Um, so the book is steeped in history we remember, uh-huh. some history we've forgotten, and uh-huh. then also um, what we talked a little bit about before um, you started, the bizarre injury that George has. Uh-huh. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about the research process and how that factored into putting the book together. In terms of research, I will just say that um, this book is, is acquired, has required more research of me than probably any other project I've, I've ever done, uh, with the exception of a black history documentary I did 30-some years ago. Uh, if I had known how much research this book was going to require, I probably would never have started it, to tell you the honest truth. Um, but the, the injury that she refers to, George, as I, as I mentioned, his life is saved by Eric Gordy. Uh, and the thing that I had to figure out uh, as a writer was I wanted George to be stranded on the ship and unable to get off. And so I had to give him an injury that would, that would account for that. And the problem with that was, okay, if I fall, he falls out of his bed. That's the, first, that's the very first scene. He, he falls out of his bed because there's an explosion. He's, he's, he's six feet up, and he falls to the, to the deck. Uh, so my, th- my problem with that is, okay, if I fall to the deck 
and I sprain my ankle and the ship is under attack, I'm getting off the ship. I'm hopping. I'm getting off the ship. If I fall to the deck and I break my leg, I'm finding a way off the ship. So I had to find a way to really immobilize him. So I broke his hip. And then the question becomes, okay, we're talking about a 19-year-old guy. You know, how, do, how does he fracture his hip? And so I did as part of the research process. I found an orthopedic surgeon. And can you give me a plausible explanation for a 19-year-old guy fracturing his hip? And I forget the medical term for it, but there's a cyst that you can have on your bone that, that you're born with that weakens, that weakens the bone. And I just say, okay, George had that when he was born. You know, these, are, these are the things you do as a writer. George had that when he was born, and that's why his hip was broken. You know, because I, I needed him. I couldn't think of any other way to have him fall out of bed and be so so injured that he would be stuck on the ship. I needed a way for him to be stuck on the ship. Because that, 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 I mean, there were, there were men who, who, who were stuck on that ship, and I still have trouble figuring out how they got stuck there. Because, I mean, the, the Oklahoma sank very quickly. It sank, I think, in 20, 30 minutes. But my thing is, I'm getting off that ship. If I'm mobile and I feel that the deck going doing this, see ya. I'm gone. I'll see you topside. You know, yes. Next question. When did the idea, uh, when did you come up with the idea uh, to write this book? And how long did the research process take? I had the idea probably in 2015, and the research was at least a year, probably two. Um, and part of, you know, part of that research is, is, you know, going down to the Library of Congress, reading old copies of the Mobile Register, which was, which was a lot great help. Uh, there's a bunch of books that I, that I read uh, just to sort of familiarize myself with, with what happened uh, uh, during the war years. Uh, and listening to, uh, listening to old, old music. I have on my, uh, on my iPhone, you know, uh, a whole bunch of music from that era. I have a bunch of Benny Goodman. I have um, the Andrews Sisters, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, and, just, and some songs you never heard of. There's a song by, um, I want to say Louis Jordan, uh, which was like an ugly song, but it's called We're Gonna Have to Slap the Dirty Little Jap. You know, so it's like you really you start listening to this stuff to try to get a sense of how the of, of what's going on in the country. So I was doing all of that for uh, for uh, for a couple of years uh, of just uh, you know really trying to immerse myself in that era. We got a question up here. Oh, and back there. Let's get before so you don't have to walk. To, so you have to double back, and then you, ma'am. What do you think the election of Barack Obama did to the current race war? What do I think the election of Barack Obama did to? The current race war in this country. The current race war? Mm-hmm. I don't think we're in a race war, uh, at least not a shooting war, uh, thank God. But I do think, I, I think that the election of Barack Obama panicked some white people in this country, to put it very bluntly and very plainly. I think that if Barack Obama had not been president, George, I mean, uh, Donald Trump would not be president now. I think that he, he you know, the, the election of this black guy with a skinny, with a, with, a, with a funny name, panicked a lot of people who have been reading the demographic writing on the wall and coming to understand that the, the truth of the Census uh, Bureau's uh, prediction that by the year, I think it's 2040, there will no longer be such a thing as a, as a, as a racial majority in this country. We'll all, and it's not that any one group will be the majority. There will be no majority. We'll all be minorities. And to me, that's, that's fascinating, and I want to see what that world is, what that world is like. It's, it's, it's challenging, and it's going to be changed. But I think that if, if you're white and have no, known no other experience but being the majority, there is a, it, it, it's possible for that to be very terrifying. The example that I use for people is if I've been Gladys Knight for 400 years, and then you come along and say, now you're just a pip, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
Now, people find that scary. I've been a pip for 400 years, you know. A lot of us have been pips for 400 years, and, 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 and it's fine. But I think that some of us who have, who have never known anything but being out front and being sort of the, 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 the agenda setter of the American demographic are having difficulty with it. And I think that's, you know, that's what Obama's election uh, uh, un- unveiled. It was always there. That's what it unveiled. And that's why we're having this moment. And you have to understand one other thing, and then we'll get to this lady right here. You have to understand one thing. Um, you know, people, very early on, people, particularly in my profession, tried to, tried to present the election of, of, the, of this guy as a sign of economic anxiety among the working class. You know, and that was, that was always bull, and now the, the studies have come up to prove that it's bull. But the thing is that if, if white voters had only wanted to return to Republican policies, they had Jeb... They had Marco Rubio. They had, uh, uh, what's his name, Uh, uh, Perry, Rick Perry. They had like 15 other people they could have chosen. But they chose, and again, the studies, including one on the University of Kansas, show this definitively. They chose this guy not despite his racism and misogyny, but because of his racism and misogyny, specifically because of. And that, to me, says a lot about, uh, you know, this moment in our in our history and in, in, in this time, you know, the, the, the country that we are now. So I'm, you know, I, I think that that's sort of, you know, the unintended legacy of, of Obama's election. The good thing is that the rest of us outnumber the, those folks. If we'd ever get off of our off of our high knees and, and vote like it and, and, and be active like it, I mean, even in the last election, it's 66 million to 63 million, Republicans have not won the popular vote in six out of the last seven elections. You know, so that that sh- that should that should tell you something. Uh, it's just just a matter of you know the, the power is there. It's just a matter of whether or not uh, the rest of us choose to use it. This lady here had a question and has been waiting very patiently. Well, we need to get rid of the electoral college first. Um, so, why did you pick Mobile as the setting? Why did I pick Mobile as a setting? Uh, history picked that for me. Um, I wanted to deal with the riot. Uh, there was a riot at the Mobile, it's called the ADSCO, and I'm forgetting, Alabama Dry Dock and Ship Company, something, something is the, the acronym. Uh, but there was a riot there in May of 1943, and that was a pi- I want that to be a pivot point of the column. So Mobile became the, became the town by default. It had to, be a, had to be a town, I want it to be a town in the south, uh, uh, and I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to, to deal with that riot. The other major riots that year were in Detroit and in Harlem, so Mobile it is. Yeah. So how do you have time to um, write a novel? This is a big book. Uh-huh. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it. So how do I have time to write a novel? Right. Well, with, you know, writing, you, watch, you write two columns a week? Yes. Uh, you get up a little earlier or, or, you, or, or you stay up a little longer. I mean, it, it, there's, no, there's no magic formula to it. It's just, you know, the thing that I tell people about writing is that uh, particularly if you're not at Stephen King level, this has got to be a thing that you need to do. Not that you want to do, but it's got to be a thing that you need to do, that you have to do, or, or else you're not going to feel whole, you're not, you're, you're not going to feel fulfilled. So it, that's what it is for me. And, and when something burns in you like that, then you, make the, you, you figure out the time. You find the time. You watch a little less TV. You know, you, 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 you know, sleep, get, get a little less sleep. You, you do whatever is required to write it. And the funny thing is, then people come and say, "When's your next book?" Oh, geez, I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm decompressing from this one. Give me give me a minute, and I'll you know I'll I'll be back at it. But uh, it's there's it, no magic formula. It's just you find the time. 
Anybody else? Any movies in the works? Not that I know of. I mean, unless you, if you got uh, Oprah or Steven Spielberg on, on speed dial, we can call them up right now. <laughs> but other than that, no, nothing, uh, nothing. Uh, I'm sorry? Sorry? I would love Freeman to be a book, to be, an, uh, to be an, uh, a movie. I, I, I see Taraji P. Henson. Yeah, I see Taraji as, um, as, uh, as Tilda. Before he died, I had James Gandolfini as, as Marsh Jim. I, I just, yeah, I just, I've, I have that, I have that one cast in my head. Um, you know, occasionally you use real people as your as your physical models for for who you're writing about, and yeah, t- uh, Taraji is Tilda. You know, <laughs> now if the movie's ever made and she and she doesn't get it, whoever whoever gets it, good luck to you. But it was, you know, she she was she was Tilda from the beginning. One, we can do one more. Una mas. Not really a question, but since I was going to talk about Freeman, uh-huh. you know, I think one of the greatest compliments you can say to an author is, um, when I read Freeman, mm-hmm. I read it in two days. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Freeman is, Freeman is my babe. Freeman, you know, you're not supposed to have favorites as, as, an, as an author, but I, but I kind of do. I think Freeman and, and this book, I think, are probably the best work that I've done. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've got to live with this one a little while longer to to figure out where it's going to fall. But it's definitely very high for me in 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 terms of the personal satisfaction that I that I derive from uh, from from writing it and, and and how close I felt that I got to what I set out to achieve. And Freeman is is like the book that just hit hit every hit right where I wanted it to be. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you, I'm glad you felt that way. Are you angry with me over the ending, or did you? Because I. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm not going to give any of that. I'm not going to give the ending away, but yeah, yeah. People, people are people are all either you know shocked by mad with me over the ending, or they say, yeah, I see where that had to happen. And you're you're in the no, I'm angry category. Okay, I got you. It's okay. Thank you so much, Leonard. You're quite welcome. Thank you. I think I'm signing books now. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.